Romans chapter 3. Begin in verse 21 again, reading through the end of the chapter, just to continue to give us context for those of you who maybe haven't been here in a couple weeks. We're going through the book of Romans, and uh, the book of Romans so far has taught us how deplorable we are. The sin of man is so utterly disgusting in the eyes of God, and how desperate we are for the love of Jesus Christ. But verse 21 of Romans chapter 3 begins to make that transition just a little bit when he said, the Bible says this, but now, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, or it's being revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Why? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to be here this evening. Father, it is our privilege to study your word. And Father, I pray you'd forgive us for the lack of being a student, a a workman in the word of God. And so, Father, I pray that we would be able to be that, that we would study your word and delve into it and understand it completely. Help us to be thankful for what we do read Help us to put it into practice. Help us not to be just hearers of the word, but doers only. Father, I pray that your will would be accomplished in our lives today. And Father, thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins, that we might have eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love a good story. I love a good story. There's some really good storytellers that I've heard over the years, and I enjoy listening to them. They could tell me a flat-out lie, and I would love it. They just do such a good job of it, all right? Some of the most exciting stories that I enjoy are stories of rescue, right? You got a damsel in distress, and the knight in shining armor needs to save her. There's all kinds of different things. Or when there's a small child that's in danger, and someone comes alongside and helps that child out and saves him. Or when there's a family that's down and out, a family that's struggling and somebody comes to their aid and helps them out. Or when there's a husband who's struggling and just can't seem to find his way out. I love those kinds of stories because they're stories of underdogs. Okay, Right now, March Madness is going on in the NCAA. Going on right now. And the underdog stories are the most fun. 
It's not fun when the number one seed just runs through everybody else and beats everybody. It's fun when that, you know, 16th seed upsets that number three seed, and it's an awesome, wonderful time. We love underdog stories. All these stories are stories of incredible deliverance, of being freed. These are stories of, I love this, impeccable timing. It's impeccable timing. If there was a kid walking across the street and there was no cars coming, the kid was in no danger at all, and somebody reached out and just grabbed the child and brought him back, where would the story be? It's when there's impeccable timing, when that car's coming and that young man just reaches out and grabs that little child and rolls across the concrete and hits the curb and saves the little child. That's when it's a story. Impeccable timing, right? I love these types of stories. These are stories of supernatural influence. Love it when the Lord Jesus gets involved. We see people in these stories who are in desperate need, who need true deliverance just at the climax of their story. And here in our story, Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero, and mankind is in distress. Mankind is the, the damsel in distress. We're sitting in our tower. We can't do anything by ourselves. There's Satan as a dragon walking around, seeking whom he may devour. And here we sit waiting, trying to do something in our own strength, but we're unable to do it. We're waiting for Jesus. We're in desperate need of rescuing. We are down and out. We are in danger of eternal damnation. At the very best, we're struggling through our spiritual lives with no way out of the struggle. And honestly, the timing is perfect. The timing is perfect. I want you to think about the timing of our story. It had been approximately a thousand years since the children of Israel denied God as their king. They said, we no longer want God as our king. We want a physical human being as our king. And we know that God gave them Saul, head and shoulders above the rest, uh, the son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was this wonderful, wonderful, awesome man until he got power. And God gave them exactly who they deserved. 300 years after Saul is made king, both Israel and Judah are conquered and taken captive, one by Assyria and the other by Babylon. God's people, the children of Israel, had been taken captive. And throughout, we're studying the book of Nehemiah right now, they come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple and they, they rebuild the walls and different things, and so they do come back a little bit. But after that, it was... Takeover after takeover. Takeover after takeover. First, we see the Greeks. They come in and they take over. And then we see the Romans. They come in and take over. So we understand from uh, history that the people of God had been in captivity for at least, at least 700 years with some semblance of freedom mixed in. There's a few people that gave them a little bit more freedom than others. But for 700 years after they had, been, had a king, they were their own nation, for 700 years they have been captives. And the whole time, 
The whole time through this 700 years, there would be ebbs and flows of following the commands of God, not following the commands of God. Following the commands of God and not following the commands of God. Since the 13th century B.C., the Israelites had been following the law. Been following the law that Moses gave. God's law to the Jewish people required sacrifice. Required sacrifice. In particular, God's law required a sacrifice at least once a year for the sins of all the people. In fact, the Bible says that he was not to go in often. Don't go into the Holy of Holies often. And so there was a sacrifice to be made once a year for the sins of all the people. The sacrifice was to be taken and was to be sprinkled on something. Does anybody know what that is? The mercy seat. It was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was made out of pure gold. One piece of beaten pure gold. In fact, you're in Romans chapter 3, we read there. Let's go to Exodus chapter 5. Let's read a little bit about the mercy seat. Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 20 is the first giving of the Ten Commandments. So we're not far off that. Just five chapters after Exodus chapter 25 and verse 17. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 17. The Bible says this, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on one end and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one toward another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. Verse 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above, upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Verse 22. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So can you picture it? I've had the opportunity to go to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and they have a a replica tabernacle done up, and they have a replica mercy seat done up. And it's just interesting to see. It's a beautiful picture of of two angels in pure gold reaching over the top in the midst of this mercy seat over top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I want to spend a lot of time here on the significance of the Ark of the Covenant, but here in verse 22, the Bible calls it the Ark of the Testimony. This was a testifying of what God had done. This is a testifying of who God was. And so we see this mercy seat. But did you notice what the purpose of the mercy seat was? The purpose of the mercy seat was for one particular purpose. Notice with me in verse 22, the first couple words, and there I will meet with thee. This is a meeting of God and man. This is where God is going to meet with man, really particularly the high priest. The high priest was only allowed, we'll get there in just a second, only allowed to go in once a year. 
And this is where he would, this was where God would be. This was in the holy of holies. And there was much that he had to do. We'll get to that in just a second. But if you will, it was the place where God would meet with mankind. If I can put it to you maybe just a little bit different. It was the connection between two worlds. Spiritual and physical. Spiritual and physical. Now no man has seen God at any time. Okay? But this was the place where God would meet. Now the question is, what was to be done where we meet with God. What was to be done at the mercy seat? Now I need you to turn over to Leviticus chapter 16. Don't go to sleep yet. This is important. You may not understand why yet. Leviticus chapter 16. What was to be done at the mercy seat? Look with me in verse 1. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died. They offered strange fire, the Bible tells us. Verse 2, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times, at all times, into the holy place within the veil, before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. This is where God comes down and meets Verse 3, thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock with a, for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with a linen miter shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. Okay, so just, I'm trying to get you into the, in the mood here. Think about this, all right? He's going to go in one time a year and he has to put on specific garments. He has to put on linen garments. We could get into all kinds of pictures as to why it's linen. But he has to wash his body. These are holy garments. So he's supposed to take a bath before he ever even puts them on. This is an important time. Verse 5. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron, verse 6, shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself for his house. This is specifically for Aaron before he goes in as the high priest. He's got he's to make sure he's cleansed. Verse 7, And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Oh my goodness, there's so much here. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. So the the one that got the Lord, he's the one who's going to be offered for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be, the scapegoat, shall, the Lord pre shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bringing it within the veil. 
And he shall put incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock, watch this, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, starting from the east, working his way west. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering, that is, for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So it's just going to stop here. We're going to go further. He's taking the blood of these two things, and he needs to make an atonement. And the word atonement is such a powerful word. It means to make restitution. And so he's making an atonement. He's sprinkling blood on the mercy seat from east to west, sprinkling that blood. Now he has to do that for himself, and he has to do that with the goat that was given from the people of Israel. Verse 16. Here it is again. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place. Because, why, why does he need to do this? Watch, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make the atonement in the holy place until he come out and hath made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel." Now, I know that's a lot, but this is so important. This is so important because the mercy seat was the place that atonement for the sins of the people was made because of their uncleanness, because of what they had done the year previous. They needed to make atonement for their sins. It was the place where the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood as a payment for the sins of the people. Again, it was the place where atonement was made. You might be asking yourself, why does this matter for 21st century AD Christianity? Well, I want you to notice Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. The Bible says this, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. This is why this is important. Notice, first of all, that this is the work of God. Okay, I want you to just break this verse down just a little bit. Okay, Whom God, God is the key here. God is the important one here. God is the almighty one who is making all of this possible. Notice that this is, again, the work of God, whom God hath set forth. You might be asking yourself, who did God set forth? Look at verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
So the redemption is in Christ Jesus. The very next word, excuse me, I went back, is whom God has set forth. So God has set forth Jesus Christ. Set forth Jesus Christ to be what? Here it is, to be what? To be a propitiation. I'm beginning to think that this is, this is one of my favorite words in all the Bible. The propitiation. Very, very simply, it means payment. Very simply. Now, we, we can break this down an awful lot. But Strong's defines this particular word, Strong's Dictionary defines it as the place of payment. The place of payment. Now, this is important. Remember, what was the mercy seat? The mercy seat was the place where God would meet with man. Any idea what one of the names of Jesus was? Say, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Don't miss this. The mercy seat was the place where God would meet with man. Jesus is the place where man meets with God. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the one who became man, who became human flesh, God in the flesh, God with us. This is crazy. This word propitiation is an absolutely incredible word. Jesus is the place in which payment would be made. Very simply, Jesus here was set forth to be a propitiation. A propitiation. Jesus is set forth to be the mercy seat. In fact, this same word, here translated propitiation, is translated mercy seat in Hebrews chapter 9. Let's go there. Hebrews chapter 9. You might want to keep your finger here in Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be back here. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Okay, this is important, okay? Normally, typically, I don't spend a whole lot of time studying Greek because we have a Bible that's in English. But the reality is this is an interesting part of the translation process. Because propitiation means mercy seat. It means atonement. It means that God paid the debt. This is the place. Jesus is the place. Now I want you to notice in verse uh, 25 the second part of it. Jesus is brought to be the propitiation. But notice it's through faith. How? In his Blood. So this is important, and this is important. In fact, it's really important that it's his blood. Okay, so God set forth Jesus Christ to be the propitiation. How? Through faith in his blood. Jesus is the place. His blood 
is the sacrifice. Jesus is the place. His blood is the sacrifice. You're in Hebrews chapter 9 maybe still. Go to look at verse 22. Verse 22. The Bible says this, And almost all things are by the law purged with what? With blood. And without shedding of blood, guess what there is? No remission. You see, the reality is the only way propitiation works is if there's blood shed. The only way that the mercy seat is, is a, rec, a place of reconciling, a place of atonement, is if there is blood shed for the reconciliation, for the atoning process. Jesus is the propitiation. Don't miss this. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the payment. He is the mercy seat. And here we must have faith in his shed blood. The atoning blood. It is the sacrifice. Listen, it is the sacrifice that never has to be made again. Why? Because he was the perfect lamb. Without blemish and without spot. He is the sacrifice made once for all. He's the propitiation through faith in his blood. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, My little children, these things write I unto you. Why do I write them? That ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have a what? Advocate. Woohoo! We have an advocate. We have somebody that's going to work on our behalf. Who do we have? We have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is the advocate. He's the go-between. He's the mediator. Look at verse 2. And he is the what? Propitiation for what? For our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, Aaron, when he walked into the temple, he had to make an atonement for what? For his sins. But guess what? He needed another animal to make an atonement for the sins of the other people. Listen, Jesus is the propitiation, not just good enough for one person, but good enough for the sins of the whole world. He was the perfect lamb, lamb without blemish and without spot. And his blood is the sacrifice. It is through his blood. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. Look with me in verse 9. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. You can see verse 8, verse 7 all talk about the love of God. And verse 8 says, for God is love. Verse 9 says, in this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Notice this is the story of rescue. Man depraved, man deplorable. God seeing them in that state sends his only begotten son that we might live through him. Here in his love, verse 10. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation for our sins. Let me say it one more time. Propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ came for our sins. You can't miss this. Jesus Christ came for our sins. Now notice the third part of verse 25. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. To whom God has set forth, he put him forth to be a propitiation. How? Through faith in his blood. Here it is for what purpose? To declare, notice, whose righteousness it is, his righteousness. For, look at the remission of sins. This was all done for the remission of sins. Don't miss this. Jesus as the propitiation. Jesus as the place of propitiation. He is the place that we can come to remove our sins. Don't miss this. To remove our sins and to gain God's righteousness. It's a twofold thing. Listen, I'll just be honest with you. I hate money. Okay? I despise it. I'm so sick of it. I don't want to see any more of it. Okay? I, I just wish we could live in a cashless, no money, not, not even just cashless, but no bank accounts, nothing. Right? Like if I need something, I just go get it. Right? Wouldn't that be nice? Okay, so here's the reality. We have a debt that is called sin. I have a debt that is called mortgage. Blech. Right? I hate owing people money. They take interest. It stinks. I don't want it. But here is the deal. I have a debt. I want it paid off so badly. Currently, right now, I don't have that kind of money. So what am I doing? I'm making payments. Don't, don't miss this, guys. The, the children of Israel, guess what they did once a year? They made payments. They made payments. And they made payments. And guess what? Their debt was never relieved. Their debt was never completely forgiven. But here comes Jesus Christ. And he says, I see your debt. I have a debt. I have a debt of sin. And he says, I want to pay that for you. And guess what he does? He brings my account right up to zero. That's the remission of sins. So no longer do I have sins. But not only does he remove my sins, he declares his righteousness to me. So not only does he take away my sins, he gives me an infinite amount of money and says, you are now my child. So it's not just a record of payments being taken care of. It's another step up. And he says, listen, I've taken care of your debt and I've given you something far more than you deserve. Mercy and grace. Remission of sins and declaring his righteousness. We don't deserve either one of them. But notice God never does anything just halfway, does he? He does it all the way. Jesus is the place that we can come to remove the sins that are past and to gain the righteousness of God. The sacrifice of Jesus removed our sin far from us. 
Psalm chapter 103 and verse 12, the Bible says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful as far as the east is from? They'll never touch. You keep traveling east, you're still going to travel east. You never start traveling west. You start traveling north, eventually you're going to start traveling south. They meet the east and west never meet. That's how far our sins have been cast before us. And by the way, that's because of the propitiation. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, he made us righteous before an almighty God. Again, now no longer does God see our sin. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ. That, by the way, cleanses us from all sin. This Jesus, this propitiation made us free from the curse of sin and transported us into heavenly places. This is the propitiation. This is the mercy seat. You say, where are you getting this all from? Where are you getting the mercy seat? Let's finish off verse 25 with this. How? How did all this happen? Through the forbearance. Through the forbearance of God. Through the forbearance of God. This is the restraint of God. If you want to give it another word, let's just give it mercy. Through the mercy of God. As a holy God, holy God who cannot have sin in his presence. A holy God who cannot have sin in his presence, guess what he should have done to us all? Destroyed us. We've seen God destroy people before, right? The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, God despises sin, God is holy, God is just. He cannot have sin in his presence. But I want you to go over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 4. Verse, verse 1 we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We're the children of disobedience, children of wrath, even as others. But verse 4, but God. Two greatest great words. But God, who is rich in mercy. For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. Together with Christ, by grace, are you saved, verse 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, if any one of you came to me today and said, Pastor Yeomans, I want to pay your mortgage for you. Anytime, okay? Anytime you're ready, I'm ready. I would love that. That would be amazing. But here's the reality. God did so much more than just pay our debt. He took us from dead and made us to sit in heavenly places. 
He just skipped the whole middle section. He says, listen, I don't want you just to live life. I want you to live it more abundantly. I want to give you something that you have never experienced before in Jesus Christ. God gave us a place where mercy can be received, and not only mercy, but grace can be extended. Jesus Christ is the melding, the blending of the place where God and man. Jesus is the place, and he is the one whose blood covers every sin. He's the propitiation. So let me ask you this evening, are you in need of mercy today? Are you in need of mercy? You say, why would I be in need of mercy? Go back and read Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter, the middle of Romans chapter 3. Because of our sin. Because every one of us are sinners. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, the Bible says, for all have sinned. And guess what? Come short of the glory of God. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we cannot make it to the glory of God. But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. Jesus Christ is the one who bridges the gap. Are you in need of mercy today? Won't you run to Jesus? Won't you run to Jesus? You say, I've, I've already come to Jesus. Well, guess what? So often, we take advantage of the mercy of God. So often, we sin willingly, knowingly, purposefully, against our God. Guess what we need? Mercy. The psalmist says, his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We need the mercies of God every morning. Can I encourage you? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Won't you come to the place where God meets with man and the blood of Jesus Christ has been sprinkled to make an atonement for your sin? Won't you come to that place and find mercy? Won't you come to that place of grace where you can find mercy and grace to help in time of need? Whatever you're struggling through, whatever you're going through today, you can have mercy because of Jesus Christ. You can have mercy. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today, I'm going to encourage you to come to Him. Encourage you to receive him as the propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation. If you're struggling with sin right now, you're bent in sin, you're broken in sin, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Jesus is our propitiation. It's a beautiful word. I want to spend way more time here. In fact, if you're interested, I did a word study on propitiation. I wrote it all down. If you're interested in it, I'll email it to you, free of charge. It's just a lot of information that I thought would bore you. But it is incredible to know what this simple word of propitiation means. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus topped us up and took us further. I'm so thankful for Jesus as the propitiation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for all you do for us. Father, it is a humbling privilege to preach your word and specifically preach on this 
particular passage. Father, I hope that you're pleased. Father, it is you who is our all in all because of what you've done for us, because of your shed blood, we can enter the throne room of grace and find that mercy and grace and help in time of need. Father, I pray that we would access it. We have the key. You are it. Thank you for your forbearance. Thank you for not destroying us when we sinned. Thank you for Jesus Christ's shed blood. Father, if there's one person that listens to this that does not know you as personal Savior, I pray that today would be that day that they see you as their propitiation. We're so grateful for all you do, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.